Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Jose's been let off the hook. Hello and welcome to what I guess is a landmark 10th episode of The Real Football Cast. I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, I'll once again be dissecting through all the hot topics in football. As you should know by now, the aim is to separate all the footballing week from the chat, as on this episode, we look back on another weekend's Premier League action. After riding solo last week, I've dived into the transfer market and picked up some guests to help me cut through all the noise. Joining me tonight, I have three real football men who will be searching for audio goals, and they are all debutants on the pod. First up is Dean Smith. Me and Dean have crossed swords in the podcasting world before, so it is a pleasure to have him on board. Dean, how are you? Yeah, very good, mate. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, all good, buddy. And also joining us is a debut run-out for Paul McGarrickey. Now, he's the co-founder of the excellent Over the Bar website. Thanks for joining me, Paul, and I hope you are looking forward to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Not a problem, mate. And of course, I should not forget my third and final guest. His name is Scott Sanders, and he is here tonight. Scott, how are you, my friend? I'm very good, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. I'd best do some social media bits first, otherwise we'll be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Any questions, comments or feedback, please send them my way. Twitter is the main place we can find the show each week due to the amount of links that will be posted, but you can also find it at realfootballcast.com. From there, you'll see it on iTunes. You can also search it on iTunes via Real Football Cast. Um, if you're on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss a single episode. But if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can also find me on SoundCloud and Acast. And as you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is in association with Loserpool. Now, what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a new game that sees betting turned on its head, with the focus being on the loser. Now, if that has grabbed your interest, be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. Especially, as from the October 20th Premier League action, there will be a guaranteed prize pool of £1,000. So that's something you'll definitely not want to miss out on. Right then, it's time to go live. And before we analyse the action over the past few days, let's quickly turn our attention to the Ballon d'Or. The shortlist, or shall I say long list, with, what, 30 names announced? 
That was on Monday. So no player outside Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi has won this award since 2008. But could this finally be the year in which we see the duopoly broken? And if so, who will be that man? So, Dean, I'll start with you. Is it going to be one of our sort of usual big names or will we finally see someone at the top of the tree? Uh, I've got my fingers crossed for uh, Luka Modric personally, Dan. I think Good uh, both both Messi and Ronaldo have had great seasons, but nothing on what they've had before. Uh, Barcelona sort of struggled in the Champions League and then in the World Cup. Uh, Argentina weren't great and um, Real Madrid weren't great in the Liga and then Portugal struggled in the World Cup as well. And they both had the moments in the World Cup, but... Uh, I think in the World Cup, yeah, you usually see someone who, who sort of flex the muscles in that tournament with it being such a global event. And uh, for me, Modric was the player of the tournament. I know he won that in the end. He, he also won the FIFA Best, I think, um, and maybe the Champions League Player of the Year as well. So um, I think he's done pretty much everything that he can do uh, as a central midfielder to be able to be in with a shout of it. And uh, it'd be nice to see the uh, the duopoly broken, I guess. Paul, is that something you agree with or have you got a different point of view? No, I absolutely agree. I can't see it being anyone else, to be honest. Um, you know, as we've said, uh, Messi and Ronaldo not really done anything outside their ordinary brilliance uh, the last sort of 18 months. And uh, Modric, really, uh, well, Champions League, Champions League and then World Cup. Can't be anyone else, really, for me. And Scott, if we were to so say perhaps what about a World Cup winner could Kylian Mbappe be the uh, the Ballon d'Or winner is that something you could see or are you a Modric fan I think, I think um, yeah I think Mbappe is a good shout I think also Kante as well uh, is another one that could win it in my eyes um, but if I had to go for a favour I would uh, echo what the others have said and go for Modric I'm surprised he hasn't won it by this stage um, the last 10 years Messi and Ronaldo dominating it they have been the two best players but have they being the best players every single year, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's a big surprise that someone like Modric or Iniesta uh, hasn't won it up until now. So I'd like to see that broken this year. I'd like to see Modric uh, get it myself. Yeah, I think everyone's got to the point where we just like to see it broken. That's not to sort of um, take anything away from what Ronaldo and Messi have done over the last decade, but you get to that kind of that point in time where it's just nice to talk about someone else in football. You know, the debate is always Ronaldo versus Messi, but it's just nice to sort of open up and almost usher in a new era of uh, football because like Dean intimated we've seen the World Cup in Argentina and Portugal both flattered to deceive falling out in the round of 16 so you know it's just nice to keep it fresh isn't it but we'll have to see if the uh, the judges of that award agree with us I hope they do but let's focus now on the on-pits action and where to start because there are a number of big headlines from the weekend so let's go to um, let's go to Old Trafford first and um, it was a game Dean where Newcastle let the Red Devils off the hook um, for you, is that a pivotal moment in Mourinho's time at Old Trafford or is it simply a last hurrah? Um, I think we'll find out over the next few weeks. I think the next few weeks are going to be absolutely vital at United. Uh, they've got some really tough games coming up both in the Premier League and the Champions League. So I think if Mourinho can sort of use that come back in the second half as a springboard for some better form in the next few weeks, then maybe he might be able to save his United career. But um, I think the odds the odds were that Mourinho would leave by Christmas um, before the game, and I've got to say, from what I've seen of United so far, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I think it was uh, a good twenty twenty five minutes at the end, but otherwise, it was really a poor poor display from United. And I think if they were playing against pretty much any other team in the league, maybe aside from your Huddersfield and Cardiff, um, I think they'll have lost that game based on how poor they were defensively in the first half and. 
yeah, maybe it's papering over the cracks. Maybe it's just uh, delaying the inevitable a little bit because at the, at the minute the whole club looks like a, like it's in a real mess. And um, even though they've got the quality and, and they've, they've shown it in that last twenty minutes, whether they can then do that in some of the tough games coming up, I think they've got Chelsea and, and Juventus in the next and uh, a few weeks after the international break. So I think that's when we'll find out one way or the other whether Mourinho will be on his way out or or whether he can turn things around. Paul, the United players will be lauded perhaps after their fantastic comeback, but at the same time, does that not ask its own question as to say, like, well, where were you against West Ham? Because by and large, it was the same players on the pitch, so why are they not doing it every week? Very good question, yeah. Um, I think a lot of their fans will be thinking that as well. I've got a lot of mates who are United fans and and feel that the um, the confidence that they used to have in, in a United team being able to come behind and, and get a late result um, has been missing for years. And whilst Saturday they may have done that, um, you know they shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place against a team like Newcastle at home. But the the result comes at the right time for them. It goes into an international break. That probably gives a bit more breathing space for uh, Mourinho. But he's got to get something together really there. They've... they've the, the club is in a mess. I know that Gary Neville on Friday night had a bit of a five-minute rant about the situation because it is top to bottom that there seems to be discord. The fans are fed up with the style of football. They're fed up with uh, Ed Woodward, but you know, barring Mourinho's comments over the summer about him not buying certain defenders and things that he wanted, pretty much every other target that they've asked for, he's gone and got. So there's, there is wholesale uh, changes that need to be made at United and Blaming it all on the manager is is quite easily done in this situation, but players as well. I don't know that was it Valencia that was uh, he put out a bit of a cryptic tweet on maybe the, the Friday or Saturday morning, I think it was, uh, wishing the team good luck, and uh, it wasn't even in the squad. And I know that in the press conference on um, before the game, there was talk of Mourinho trying to eye up some of the journalists who he thinks have. Uh, got in touch with some of the players for comments he believes there's a leak in the dressing room, doesn't he? And it's all this uh, agenda talk. It's it's There's a lot of problems at United. And Scott, there's also problems at Newcastle. I mean, they're still searching for their first win of the season. I mean, on the one hand, they can take some solace from the fact they were tuning up and gave United an almighty scare. But at the same time, just how demoralising will that defeat be? Because, you know, they had him on the ropes... And then they've collapsed, haven't they? So where does Rafael Benitez take his team from here? I think it's got to move on from this game. I mean, they give it a good shot. Um, they didn't disgrace themselves in any way. Uh, even when they got it back to two all menu, uh, Newcastle still had a decent chance to make it three two before United got the winner. Uh, so I think they just need to move on. Just think about the next games coming up. Um, they haven't got a bad side there, but I do think they will struggle though between now and the end of the season. Um, they just need to see a way to uh, see out the games, really. And, um, yeah, they really need to improve. But um, United, um, there's no no excuse, really. I think it's too little too late for them, this win. Um, I think defending was poor in the game. I think for the second uh, second Newcastle goal, uh, Muto was allowed about four different touches inside the box there. That's right, yes. And it's just not, it's mm. just not good enough for Man United. I think it's just too little too late for me. Uh, Mourinho is talking about um, comparing himself to Brexit and the rain, saying they would be blamed uh, either way. Um, he's got a point, actually, to be honest, because he's a bit like the Brexit of uh, football managers, isn't he, really? He is, um, actually, yes. Get, it's a very good analogy. I like that. That, that, that works. I think, I think, yeah, he's going to be blamed um, either way. I mean, a lot of it 
of course, it's justified. Um, I respect what he's done, his achievements as a manager, um, but I think he's at the wrong club. I just don't think he suits Manchester United. They're used to a certain style. They had years of success under Fergie, and I just think it's a matter of time before Mourinho's gone, uh, unless they do a dramatic turnaround between that and the start of next year over the Christmas period. Um, but I don't really see that happening. I think they're strong enough to get into that top six spot, but uh, albeit most likely at the bottom of that pile. Um, so, yeah, worrying times for uh, Manchester United, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I think you're right in the sense that they, they will find their legs eventually and get into the top six, but where they line that top six, you're probably sort of at the moment thinking six at best. But we could talk about Mourinho and United all night and, you know, that is its own sort of a podcast episode. But what we'll do, we'll move on to some other big headlines. And, of course, one was at Anfield where Liverpool Man City played out a clash which did not quite live up to the hype. But then again, with the amount of hype involved, they were always going to be somewhat up against it. Um, Paul, I'll ask you as a Man City fan. Obviously, the focus will be on Riyad Mahrez's missed penalty. That's now four from his last six that he's missed. And although hindsight is a wonderful thing, I think we could say that was an awful decision for him to be on spot kick duty. Yeah, it's um, interesting that Guardiola wasn't aware of his record um, in matches. But if he's hitting him in the training ground, then that's a different thing altogether. Um, apparently, it's upset Gabriel uh, Jesus as well, because he really wanted to take it. But um, Penalties are one of those things. It's, it's so easy to turn around and say, oh, you just hit the target and everything. But Anfield's a tough place. I know the goal's not any smaller or any different shape or anything like that. It was a poor miss, but... Um, that that shouldn't take away from the fact that I actually thought it was a, a hard-earned point. Um, I would have took a draw before the game, given the um, the two uh, performances we had at Anfield last season, Premier League, Champions League, um, and the game itself was like a, a it was more like chess than uh, any of the other previous meetings we've had with Klopp and Guardiola uh, the last sort of twelve months. So. It's, the penalty miss shouldn't overshadow what was, in my opinion, one of the, the more interesting nil-nil draws um, that we're going to see this season. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite as frenetic as the Liverpool City clashes that we've been treated to last season. So, I mean, do you reckon Guardiola went in with a mindset that, do you know what, a point's not going to be the worst result here. Like There'll be other battles to be fought when it's more important further down the season. So, ultimately, I guess that missing a penalty, and it could have been three, will rankle somewhat, but... Over the course of the 90 minutes, is that sort of a fair result and something you think, OK, that's absolutely fine um, for the position that we're in? Yeah, I do. And I think it comes at uh, a stage in the season where we're still not firing on all cylinders. Uh, Liverpool have had a really difficult run. I was looking at their uh, last seven or eight games and, you know, Barron playing Southampton, they've all been tough ties. Um, I know Klopp said they're a bit tired. He might have some... You know, he might actually be right in that sense. Um, Guardiola's made no secret about the fact that he is genuinely scared of Liverpool's attacking three. If you've seen the uh, Amazon documentary that City released uh, last month, I think it was, wasn't it? Uh, in that series, Guardiola does talk about how terrified uh, he was of, of having his defence go up against Mane and Salah and Firmino. Um, the, on, on their day, the Arguably one of the most potent attacks in the in well in Europe, really, I'd say. Um, so containing them was his first plan. You, the idea is to go there, not get beat. We've done that. Ideally, you'd want to take the win. Um, and then 
there are, like you said, there could have been maybe another penalty or two. Um, but it is what it is. It was. It wasn't an easy game by any stretch, and, and the idea was to go there, not get beat, uh, still have something to play for, keep everything uh, at this stage of the season, keep everything tight. Because at the moment, I don't know whether you'll agree with me or not. I know you Spurs fans and everything, but um, I genuinely think that it's going to be City and Liverpool with Chelsea sort of on the coattails going into the the title run. Um, I think that's a fair statement to be. So at the moment. Yeah, I think it's it. that's it. Whilst you still see them as rivals now, um, get the point. If we need to beat them, we, at least we've got the home game, um, which I think comes New Year's Day, actually. Um, whereas last season, we travelled to Anfield. There was a little bit less pressure on us in the sense that we had uh, a greater uh, points tally and um, the fixtures that we had ahead of us after that game were, were quite kind. The... Champions League is a different story because they're just one-off games really, aren't they? Uh, cup finals and in themselves, even if it is a two-legged tie. So yeah, point to point Anfield, uh, well-earned and it will have been the very minimum what Guardiola would have expected from his team. And Dean, Paul's just referenced uh, the comments from Jurgen Klopp about rest. Now he obviously feels that his forwards need rest and that's something they probably won't get even though there's an international break because they'll be off uh, around the world uh, in, in uh, international duty. But the question, I guess, comes from this is that will Liverpool be able to last the pace in terms of a you know, whole title battle? Will, more importantly, their attack line be able to um, last the pace? Can they rely on Sturridge and even perhaps Dominic Solanke to sort of come in and keep things fresh over the course of the season? What do you think? Well, I think that's why they've they've got out and signed Jacari uh, as well, and they're hoping obviously that Sturridge can stay fit and and be a force as well this season. I think the problem with Klopp's teams has always been that they seem to run out of steam towards the end of the season, and I think that's been the case with Liverpool in the last two years. And they, they certainly uh, the way they set up is certainly more suited to the cup football, which I think is why um, I'd probably make them more likely to win the Champions League or reach the Champions League final than win the league, personally. Um, I just think over a league season, there are going to be games where it doesn't go their way. And, and as you say, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pressure on that front three to, to deliver. And if they're not delivering, can you can you rely on Sturridge to set, stay fit? Can you rely on Solanke to come in and do a job? I'm not sure. And over, over 38 games, they don't have the same options that Man City do to be able to rotate, even though they have now got a lot more strength and depth than they did last season. But um, I think they, they'll be more disappointed than City with this weekend's result, um, just because, simply because they beat City last year. And, and obviously that's a, a point gained for City that they w- wouldn't have got last season. And uh, yeah, for me, City are the stronger side. Uh, Liverpool are probably going to be more of a threat when they come up against uh, the likes of Real Madrid and Bayern Munich in the Champions League than City City might be. Uh, that's my opinion. I don't know whether Paul would agree, but we'll see towards <laughs> the end of the year. Uh, we'll see towards the end of the season, I guess. But yeah, I would agree with that. I think towards the end of the season, Liverpool might sort of run out of steam, and that's when City might pull away. And I think, to be honest, my personal opinion is that City will win the league uh, fairly comfortably again this year. Wow. And uh, Scott, question for you: Do you feel that Liverpool will be? somewhat disappointed that they've missed an opportunity to really lay down a marker in this title race because you know Dean's just sort of saying that City might win it at a canter again had Liverpool won you know perhaps that balance would have been tipped slightly so is that opportunity missed for Liverpool as well? 
I think it is a bit of an opportunity missed. I mean, um, Liverpool had two good results against, or three good results against them last season over all competitions. So they would have gone in there thinking that they could do it again. They would have gone in there confident. But it didn't work out from this time. And the way City dominated the league last year, um, any team that really wants to challenge them is going to have to take points off of them, as well as taking points from the rest of the league. And um, I think Liverpool have missed an opportunity here. I think they should have been more bold and um, really tried to take the game to them. Um, I agree with the other two. I think the Liverpool and City will both be the two main title challengers this year. Um, but again, I think that City are just too strong. I think they've got more strength and depth than Liverpool got. And I think they should do it. Um, Liverpool will run them closer than they did last season, though, I think. I don't think it will be such a big points gap this time. Uh, I think Liverpool have done really good business there since Klopp's been in charge. Uh, he's strengthened in all the areas that they needed to strengthen. And they really do look a, a, a fantastic side, especially going forward. Yeah, so I think they've got, um, I th- I think they've got the sort of challenge for um, Champions League. And um, they've got one of the best managers in the world. Um, fantastic squad. And I think uh, City are looking really good. And I think they'll be probably happier with the point than Liverpool will be. OK, then let's move on to the third team, which is uh, joint at the top at the moment. We must, must not forget them. And that, of course, is Chelsea. Now, Dean, a, probably an unsurprising win, should it be said, at St Mary's as they sort of coasted on the south coast. And uh, perhaps the focus lies this week more on Ross Barkley than it does usually with Eden Hazard. So Barkley celebrated his recall into the England squad with a fantastic performance against Mark Hughes' men. For you, just what, what role can he play for the three lines and how useful will Will that addition be for England in the next two matches? Um, I really like Barkley. Um, I think his best position for me would be as a, a part of a central two, the sort of box-to-box sort of player. The only thing is, sometimes you can't always rely on him to do the defensive work. I think he has to be playing for the manager and, and really buying into the manager's values before you get that sort of side of his game. But he has all the tools to be that sort of player, the, the sort of player we've seen uh, Dembele be at Tottenham. Um, and that, personally, I was a bit disappointed when he decided to go to Chelsea because of the amount of midfielders he had. I thought he was going to struggle to get games, but uh, on Sunday he really showed what he's capable of. Um, if he can, if he can nail down a first team place at Chelsea, which is not going to be easy with the, like I say, the amount of uh, depth he have in those positions, sort of in central midfield and sort of attacking midfield, then he has every chance of becoming a regular for England. Because I mean, aside from Deli Ali, we struggled with players in that area. I think. Loftus Cheek was at the World Cup, but he's not really getting any game time this season at Chelsea either. So he has an opportunity um, to become a really key player, for, I think, for England. Uh, obviously, we now have a few younger lads who can play in those positions. and We've got Sancho and Mount in the squad this time. And I think Phil Foden's one player who can play in that sort of uh, attacking midfield role. But personally, I see Barkley's future being a little bit deeper. Um, and if, if he can strike up a partnership with like a Kovacic or something, then not only uh, will that be great for his career, but it'd be great for Chelsea because I think like you made the point there, you said uh, we mustn't forget them. And I think a lot of people are forgetting just how good they've been this season. Um, at the moment, uh, obviously we'll see we'll see how it goes as time goes on. But they've, they've had a few hard games and come through them on, on Sunday. They just absolutely swatted Southampton aside. Really, uh, had a couple of scares, but never really never really looked like it was going to be anything other than a comfortable win and, and Barkley was a, a key part of that. And Paul, while we're talking about the England squad, um, some new names, interesting names, um, one of them being Mason Mount and you've also got Richard Dortmund's um, Sancho as well. So 
you know, a nod to the future, perhaps. And what's your take on all things England at the moment? Yeah, no, it's good to see. Uh, Southgate's never really, in any of his selections, been afraid of uh, ignoring what the media might want and what the fans might want. And he's made his own mind up about players, which is, is always good to see a manager have that sort of strength. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not seeing much of Mount, but um, Matthew, who writes for the Championship, or writes about the Championship for uh, our website over the bar, he, um, he rates Mount quite highly. He really does think he's the one for the future. Um, he looked all right uh, in one of the televised games of Sofa Derby about a week or two ago now. Um, Jaden Sancho, I saw him play for our academy team two or three times, and uh, he's definitely an exciting player when he wants to be. Um, that is the big problem with him, though, is he does have an attitude and he's on fire at the moment for Dortmund, but that could be just because he's getting a run in the team. If Southgate can manage him and get him to work as hard as we saw the other lads do uh, over in Russia, uh, it could be a great asset, but Sancho is one that I would be a bit cautious about getting too excited over, if I'm honest. Really? Um, and that, yeah, and that's that's me from what I've seen uh, when he played for our academy setup. And one of the reasons why he moved to Dortmund was he, he didn't turn up for training for four weeks, uh, stopped taking telephone calls from uh, the city coaching staff. And in the end, it was a case of let's just get him off the books and get him sold. Um, but on the pitch, he, he, he has his moments and he's certainly on fire in Germany at the moment. And Scott, is it a case of Danny Welbeck knows where the bodies are buried at the FA? Because how does he keep getting called up into an England squad? <laughs> oh, God only knows. I mean, um, <laughs> he's like another Emil Heskey, isn't he? It is, um, yes. he, he's got to be doing something right, though, isn't he? I mean, um, behind the scenes, because he's certainly not doing it on the pitch, is he? That's um, right, yeah, that's right, yeah. It, it baffles me. I mean, yeah, it's just uh, a real... A real surprise me, a real shock. I just don't see how the guy keeps getting into the team. Uh, taking nothing away from him. I mean, playing at a top level, obviously, that's a very difficult thing to achieve, and he's done it. But uh, to play, be playing at international level, uh, for me, just not good enough. There's so many better options there. I mean, I'd even go as far. I mean, I know I'm a bit Spurs biased, but I'd even go as far as uh, bringing Jermaine Defoe back uh, ahead of uh, <laughs> Welbeck. I mean, um, I think he's, he, he's a bigger threat in front of goal, at least. Um, yeah, I, I really don't understand that one. Dean, it's, Troy Deeney's comments the other day actually it just reminds me. He was saying about you know, like someone will like Welbeck gets in the England squad. Is that because England have this sort of preconceived notion of the type, the kind of players they want in their system? And if you don't fit that system, that you're never going to get a call up. So it doesn't matter what Deeney does for Watford, or perhaps someone like I don't know Callum Wilson for Bournemouth. Do you know, is it if your face doesn't fit, you've got you're not in with a chance of getting into an England call-up, and that's why Welbeck keeps getting the nod? Maybe, but you think um, that you'd need to call up the player and see how he fits into the squad and, and, yep. and trade and stuff to know. Um, personally, yeah, I'm not sure about Deeney because his style is so um, abrasive and so very different to how England play. I mean, you've got the two forwards in the World Cup with Kane sort of dropping deep and dictating play and then Sterling sort of running in behind and trying to nip the foul so he can get the free kicks, which is the only way that England score, as we all know. Um, where where Deeney fits into that, I'm not 100% sure. Whereas someone like Callum Wilson, who you mentioned there, who on Saturday had an absolutely fantastic game, by the way, from what I saw. Um, 
I think I think he'd be perfect option off the bench, big and strong, quick, scores goals. I don't see why he's not getting a call up over a player like Welbeck. Although obviously Welbeck is, I think he's pretty well liked in the squad, and his, his record for England is actually surprisingly good. Uh, Hodgson was a big fan of him, sort of playing him on the left of a front three most of the time, and yeah, he's, he's actually bagged quite a few for England. But for me, yeah, I, I don't see why he'd be getting in above someone like Wilson who. As he is on his side as well, and, and, and he's in really good form at the moment. I, I, I see how he fits in. I don't see how Dini fits in, but I definitely don't see how Welbeck fits in. Yep, that's certainly one that's going to baffle football fans up and down the country. But let's go back to Chelsea, Southampton. I just want to focus on Southampton quickly, Paul. This is an interesting stat that I've uh, come across today. Southampton, they've actually had the third highest amount of shots. That's shots in general, not just shots in target. But 117 shots they've had this season. They've scored six goals. Now, if you were looking at the glass half full, you'd say, OK, well, yeah. at least they're creating. At the same time, though, that glass is arguably more than half empty because they're really struggling in front of the goal. So how much of that is going to be a concern for the Saints and Mark Hughes? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I thought that, well, uh, particularly against Chelsea, despite them um, being outclassed by a superior side, they, they were still looking quite dangerous. I didn't realise that the shooting accuracy was was nearly anything like that, but um, it is definitely a concern. I thought signing of things would complement the squad quite well, uh, but I did see him put one in their stands as well. Um, I, I don't know what what really to make of that because they've they've always been a team who have, have been, in, in my opinion, or in my time of watching football, they've been a team that have always tried to play uh, football in the right way and and. and keep looking for spaces but yeah the, the lack of clinical skill isn't something that I always associate with, with that club and I know they've got quite a strong scouting network there as well but it's just a run of poor form in it and the, the problem for them was goals last, last season but from what I've seen this year whilst they can't score they can't defend either particularly the, uh, the Barkley goal with four defenders in the line and not one of them really thinks to move anywhere near the ball and it just goes through them for a tap-in. They've got more problems than just the shooting accuracy, but yeah, that's a terrible stat to have. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously issues at both ends. Had Danny Ings scored that goal where he sort of blew it from three yards, it could have been a different game. But, you know, you can mm. you can have trouble in front of goal, but at least if you're sort of relatively watertight in, in comparison, then it's not the end of the world. Someone like Crystal Palace, for example, they've scored five, but they've only shipped nine. So it's not, their issue is at one end of the pitch and not both. So you can just about legislate for that. But Southampton, it's, those are the kind of double issues that will double-edged swords that could cause real problems come the end of the season. But let's move on now. Let's go to, um, let's go to Craven Cottage. And another question that has sprung up, uh, Scott, and as a Tottenham fan, you've got to try and be, um, you know, honest about <laughs> this one. People are sort of almost asking the question whether Arsenal can not only be serious top four contenders but also mount a bona fide title challenge under Unai Emery I mean they made eventual light work of Fulham and they must be said it looked incredibly good in the process didn't it so what's your take on all things Arsenal be honest (laughs) well I'm not sure about title challenge um, but they have to be contenders for the top four the way the way they're playing at the moment um since the new managers come in, they just look like a completely different team, um, attacking so well. Um, I mean, that goal that Ramsey scored was unbelievable uh, team play. I mean, it was like an exhibition match or something uh, leading up to that goal. 
uh, Obama Yang and Lacazette. I mean, they got so much firepower there. Um, they, they're really looking strong, and a, and a lot of team, a lot of uh, rival fans are saying, "Oh, but they haven't played anyone." Um, but they're not really in a much different situation to Spurs, really, and who we've played so far. So um, all credit to Arsenal. If I put my Spurs bias aside, um, they're really looking like a top side at the moment, and I think that they will probably be pushing maybe Spurs and Chelsea uh, for the third and fourth spot. Really. Um, They've looked really well. They lost their first two games, but they were they were two difficult games, and um, they've won nine games in a row. Now a lot of people will say, "Well, they played uh, lower league side in the league cup. They played uh, a nobody team in the Europa League." Um, but the fact is, nine games in a row is is pretty impressive. I think they're just looking like a, a fresh new team. And um, really, really impressed me actually so far. I'd like to see how they get on over the uh, Christmas period and when they start coming up against other top six teams again. Uh, it was unbelievable, really. And um, yeah, I was really impressed by them. Dean, one thing I found interesting is that of their six consecutive Premier League wins, they've been drawing each of them at half time. So does this suggest to you that they are not only fighting till the end, but they also now have like a plan B at their disposal? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. I think it was definitely the case on Sunday. Uh, they had Aubameyang on the bench, and I mean, what sort of better tool is it to bring off the bench than, than a player who scores the amount of goals that he scored, both at Arsenal and at Dortmund before that? Uh, they seem to have more options now. They seem to have, like you say, a plan B. When things aren't going right, they can change the way that they play in the system that they play in, which wasn't the case under Wenger. They were very impressive at times under Wenger, of course, but very one-dimensional. It was always obvious which way they were going to play, whereas now under Emery, they seem to have a few different sort of plans. Um, I would say I am in the camp that this this run, as great as it is and as good as they were on Sunday, they were, I think, they're definitely the best they've played under Emery so far. I mean, out of those nine games, I would have expected them to win every single one on paper. Uh, I think the most difficult one was maybe Everton at home. Like it's a it's a really, it's a really good games for Emery to sort of uh, get his ideas across and get the team winning, and and of course get the fans behind him. Which you know the songs he was singing on Sunday about having their Arsenal back and things like that. <laughs> um, that obviously, it's, 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 look, it's all going well for Arsenal at the minute. But I think the, the the toxic side of that club in the last few years, if they lose a few games, um, especially if they lose like sort of. Uh, Against Tottenham, for example, it could come flooding back pretty quickly. I think it's, it's still lingering a little bit there, but at the minute they're playing some fantastic stuff, and, and especially Lacazette and Aubameyang look like two of the most informed strikers in the league, uh, which is uh, slightly worrying. But I would agree that they're in a. They're, I would agree that they're in a top four race. I just wonder um, how the club and the fans will react if results sort of slow up a little bit. Paul Dean sort of hit the nail on the head about um, this run of fixtures being perfect because. Those games that they've won, it's almost that now the early season kinks have been ironed out, haven't they? We've almost forgotten the fact that they lost to Man City and Chelsea. It's like yesterday's news. And now, with such a stretch of easier or you know friendlier fixtures for them to play, it sets them up well for the bigger clashes. But obviously, they've got to deliver there, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's bang on. Um, yeah, it's been a, a kind one of them. It, it, playing City and Chelsea early on, getting out of the way with... Uh, does him a favour. Uh, it gives betting in time to to the manager. Emery's a smart guy, though. Um, what he did at Sevilla was no fluke. 
Um, it, it was very harshly disposed of at PSG, in my opinion. Um, and he's had the, the time now with these nine games to, to start building slowly. And I think they'll only go on from here as the season progresses and only get better. Um, the test will be against the bigger sides. But one thing that is noticeable about the way he's got him playing, um, which we touched on, was that just the impetus that they now have. And at times under Wenger, they looked very much like they were going through the motions. It was almost placid. And they were, they were trying to appease the fans with some of the passing play. But now there's an actual... There seems to be a bit of fight about them, um, which is, is positive to see for anyone that's not a Spurs fan, I suppose. Um, but yeah, the, the real test will come when they play against teams who I think they're going to be fighting for fourth place. For I can't see them finishing higher than fourth, not because they, you know, they're Arsenal and that's where they seem to have made a bit of a home, but um, I just think that Chelsea, Liverpool, City are too strong for them. Um, playing United, uh, playing... Spurs, you know, um, they'll be the games that define this Arsenal team season. Um, I think they'll have a good run in the Europa League as well. Uh, that'll do them favours if they can uh, get a bit further or get as far as they did last year, sorry, uh, in that competition. It, but the, it can't be understated that their fan base is, um, uh, let's say, I don't know, fickle at times. Yeah, I think that's uh, a nice, polite way to uh, sum them up. That yeah, related. that's it, yeah. Um, so it's going well for them at the moment and they'll all be happy singing they've got their Arsenal back. Um, but let's see how they feel at the end of the season then. And I don't wish any harm on, on their team. I want them to, to do well because it, it's nice to have some competition um, at the top end of the table rather than just being you know, a top four or a top six. Uh, but I think that they will um, struggle against uh, the big clubs. Okay, then let's look at the team they beat on Sunday, Fulham. And it seems for them to be a tale of two stories at the moment. I said last week that their goals could well keep them up, but on the other hand, you get the feeling their defence could be the thing that sends them back down. And Sunday might have been proof positive of that because although they scored and they did have chances, they shipped five at the other end. So, Scott, they've now conceded 21 goals in their first eight matches. That's an average of 2.625 a game if you're doing the maths. And someone said on my Twitter timeline, and I apologise, I can't remember who, that Fulham need to win, they need to learn to win ugly. Now, is that something you would agree with? Yeah, I certainly would, yeah. Um, they play good football, they play attractive football, um, but they certainly need to beef up that defence quite a lot. I'm wondering if they need to make signings in the January uh, transfer window, because um, something's not right there at the back. If you're letting in 21 goals after uh, eight games, then something needs to be done. Um, I do think that Fulham most likely will be safe this season. I think they've got enough to stay up. I think there's worse teams out there than them, um, but they certainly need to uh, grow a bit of a spine, really, um, because against Arsenal, I think they just folded after the first couple of goals went in. Um, so, yeah, they definitely need to uh, beefen up that uh, back four. OK, then, Dean, I'm not sure what your goal of the week is, guys. This one's actually to all three of you. So, Dean, is it um, the Harlem Globetrotters' effort from Ramsey on Sunday or is it Gilfie Sigurdsson's rocket the day before? So, I asked this on a quick flash poll on Twitter before recording. 73% said Sigurdsson. So, don't let that sway you. But for you, which was the uh, the goal of the weekend? Yeah, I saw that poll on your Twitter, Dan. I was just wondering if that might be because you've got more Tottenham followers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there could have been some cognitive bias there, couldn't there? So... Personally, for me, uh, the Ramsey one was a better goal. Uh, just the move was fantastic. It was like watching Arsenal evolve, weren't it, really? And uh, 
I think the way that he finished it, I mean, usually you see those sort of flicks, like, like those sort of inward flicks. Um, they, they seem, most players seem to sort of allow it to sort of bounce off the foot, whereas he actually had to time it um, perfectly and just place it into the bomb corner. So that one for me, but the Sigurdsson one was, was phenomenal as well and, and could easily have been goal of the season in, a, in another season. And yeah, it wasn't even the goal of the weekend for me this weekend. But the way he strikes that ball, so there's not many players who can hit it like that sort of with the same dip and uh, power at the same time. The way he connects is just... It's great to see he scored a few for Tottenham and uh, he scored quite a lot of them for Swansea as well. Um, so yeah, both fantastic goals. But for for me, the Ramsey uh, the Ramsey one was just slightly better. And Paul, where are you hanging your hat? Uh, it's difficult for me because they're very different. Uh, the, for me, the, the strike from Sigurdsson, it's not so much the hit; it's the turn that buys him the space. Yeah, that I like more. Great point there. Yeah, but I'm going to have to go with Ramsey because it's a great team goal. And a cute little back heel flick type thing to to put it away. I'm sorry. That's all right. Scott, is it a clean sweep or are you going with Sigurdsson? Uh, I'm actually going to go with Sigurdsson. Oh, think, okay. That's uh, fine, mate. Yeah. It, it was just an excellent uh, solo goal. Um, like you say, the way he turned on the ball, uh, the way he hit it, it was fantastic. Uh, but also in that in that game as well, I mean, uh, Pereira as well, that, that was also a fantastic goal. That um, it, it, Not quite as good as the other two, but um, that, that was quite a good goal as well, I thought. Yeah, fair point, actually. I mean, that would be largely overshadowed by what we've seen. But in any other given week, that would have been a strong contender for a solid strike. And it was also on his birthday, wasn't he? I'll tell you what, the one thing that annoyed me about Sigurdsson's goal was not the goal itself. Is if you watch Match Today, it was such a flat commentary for a fantastic goal. It was, <laughs> was like, yeah, what a goal. Like, it's like, it, it deserves so much better. But um, yeah, I think that's the problem when it's Match 5 or 6 or Match Today. It's not going to quite get the, the oomph it deserves. But anyway, I digress. Um... That was a decision that you've made, and you might need to make another decision now in terms of the top four. Uh, we're talking about Arsenal. Let's talk about Tottenham. So, you know, five into four simply will not go unless Arsenal or Chelsea win the Europa League. And then again, it could be Tottenham winning the Europa League if they drop down from the Champions League this season. But um, I was fortunate. I don't know about fortunate, actually, because it was lashing down rain on Saturday at a less than half-empty Wembley. And I saw Spurs just about get over the line. So, Dean, 1-0 to Carlos doesn't perhaps tell the... Full story, but um, you know Tottenham certainly created a lot of chances. Is that a case of Tottenham misfiring, Cardiff losing valiantly, or at the end of the day, is it a, just a case of Tottenham, like I said about Fulham, winning ugly and just getting the points? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was—just winning ugly, wasn't it? And um, perhaps something that Tottenham were able to do a few years ago very often. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to turn my nose up at three points ever, to be honest. Um, given some of the results that I remember back in the dark days. <laughs> so, yeah, it was one of those sort of ugly Wembley games where, I mean, I wasn't there myself, but the atmosphere seemed to be a little bit flat. Um, yeah, the players seemed to be a little bit tired, maybe. It just wasn't quite at it. Cardiff, for me, are, are probably the worst team in the league. Um, so you'd expect usually to put three or four goals past them with the amount of quality we've got going forward. But it's been maybe a taxing few weeks for the players and, uh, in the end, they just sort of did the job. I found Warnock's comments afterwards, not only about the, the tackle, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a few minutes, but yeah. Uh, yeah. the comments about sort of uh, Tottenham trying to run the clock down and things like that. And at the end of the day, a win's a win. Um, and I'm sure if it had been 1-0 to Cardiff, his, his players would have been doing it two or three times as much. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. It's, it's one of those sort of 
scruffy games that will be forgotten about, I think, by the time the next uh, the next round of Premier League fixtures are done. And, yeah, three points is three points at the end of the day. Uh, we can play a lot better than that. We can play a lot better than we have this season, to be honest, aside from maybe the second half at Old Trafford. I don't think we've got anywhere near the levels that we can get to yet. Um, for me, I, I think we're... I think we have more quality uh, than Arsenal. I think we have a little bit more consistency than Arsenal, but obviously only time will tell uh, how they go under under Emery. And I do think we'll just edge them out, but that might be uh, my bias sort of uh, shining through a little bit there. I'll allow it for now. It's all right. Um, we talk about winning ugly. Something that certainly was ugly was the tackle from Joe Rules on Lucas Moura. And Carl, who's a regular contributor, has been kind enough to sort of ask this question. So... Thanks for that, Cole. And also, congratulations on getting married the other day. So hopefully you'll be back to join us in the next sort of couple of weeks once you've got the honeymoon out of the way. But, Paul, what was your take on that, I must say, disgusting tackle by Joe Rawls, even not being a Tottenham fan? I mean, there's no place for that in the game. And even as a Man City fan, you've been on the end of some robust Cardiff tackles lately, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Warnock's comments aside... uh, that, that, that tackle, uh, Joe Rawls got Joe Rawls sent off there. There's no way that anyone else can turn around and say, oh, it was it was a bad decision by the referee or it was played on by Spurs. Joe Rawls is a player who's been very lucky in the last... Apparently it was his first red card in nearly two years. How? I don't know. In the two games that we played, we played them in the league a couple of weeks back. We played in January in the FA Cup and he was very lucky to stay on the pitch in both games. I know Joe Bennett was the one who tackled Sané in the FA Cup and all the attention was on his challenge. But Joe Rawls is a, a cynical player. He's, a, he's the type who's easily frustrated when he gets done by a player that's twice his class. And you could see that, yeah, he needed to do something to, to stop the move, but that's not the way to go about it. And I think it was on Sunday morning I saw an interview with Jonathan Walters. I think he was on um, Chris Kamara of Goals on Sunday. And he turned around and he said, um, what, what Joe Rawls should have done there is, is tug the shirt and get a, a yellow card. And, and it's not about that for me at all. Joe Rawls isn't smart enough to think, oh, I'll, I'll be tactical and I'll, I'll take it clearly. It's a frustrated swipe. Uh, it's, it's a red card and um, well-deserved for a player who's got away with worse tal- uh, challenges in the last uh, six months alone. But that's just me off my soapbox. I do agree that Cardiff are easily the worst team in the league. Um, Neil Warnock sets his sides up not to get tonked. Um, Cardiff are one of those teams that they are resolutely defend with their lives, but they also aren't afraid to try and um, draw ugly if you want to go about winning ugly. They, they're prepared to draw ugly. So if you're Spurs fans and, and you're frustrated about only winning 1-0, just be thankful that you haven't got that many injuries coming off the pitch. Yeah, I guess that's small mercy, isn't it, if you look, look at it like that? Yeah. But, um, Scott, in terms of Harry Kane, you know, much has been made of this season. You know, is he fit and you know fatigue and all this and for all that aside, Saturday saw him play a much deeper role as Tottenham tried to accommodate or make the best use of Lucas Moura's pace. Now, for me, I think it's something that is not playing to Kane's strengths, and I think Tottenham are not firing on all cylinders because of that. Is this something that we can utilise all season, or is eventually this going to have to change in Kane? Is back in his strongest position. Yeah, I think Kane has to go um, back into his strongest position. Um, we want Kane in areas where he's going to be a goal threat, where he's going to get plenty of chances to have a shot on goal. And um, against Cardiff, um, I didn't really see that. Um, it's a similar position, really, to what 
Kane initially started out like when he first started at Spurs. Right, he intended, yeah. yeah, intended to play in that kind of a deeper number ten role. Um, but since he's been banged in the goals season after season, I mean, surely you need to um, utilise your team um, as best you can. And uh, Kane needs to be in those goal-scoring positions. Um, it's definitely a tactic to keep back and to have occasions when it's not working if Kane's been uh, marked out of the match. Um, yeah, I can understand the thinking behind it. I mean, uh, Mora uh, is capable of scoring goals. He's dangerous. Uh, he's fast. Um, he always looks like a threat when he's got the ball. So I can kind of understand it. But um, with Kane's track record of scoring, surely you want him in that um, more that number nine position. Um, I think in uh, the match against Cardiff, um, for me, a big miss was Ericsson and uh, Dembele. I think the two of them uh, were really missing. Uh, I think the reason they didn't score more goals because they didn't have Ericsson in there, just unlocking um, that defence and uh, making those chances. And I think they really missed him on um, on the weekend. Um, but he created plenty of chances. I mean, the one the one nil scoreline didn't really do it justice. Um, they did create a lot of chances, and credit to Cardiff, uh, they worked hard. Um, but I think if a few more players had their scoring boots on that day, um, we, we could have scored a lot more. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in terms of Tottenham not having their full personnel. And I, I think also you shouldn't forget that after losing to Barcelona just a few days before, it was almost the, well, it was the perfect tonic really. Cardiff almost presented the ideal opposition because although they didn't, you know, like Paul says, they set up not to lose. Tottenham got an early goal, so it was, at least it wasn't frustrating. Not a game that's going to go down in the annals of history. As Dean says, you sort of just put it to bed, move on and hopefully get more points when the Premier League resumes. But if we move slightly further down the table and the other side in the top six is Bournemouth. Now, no one would have really expected that at, what, week eight of the season, but they're having a fantastic start. And not only that, Dean, um, they've scored 16 goals this season already, and that's an average of two per game. And Saturday saw their second four-goal haul of the season so far. Callum Wilson was saying after the game that there was still work to be done after winning 4-0. Now, do you think he's perhaps being a bit hypercritical there? Because there's not a lot else they could have done, really, on, on Saturday. Uh, no, to be honest, I think that's exactly how Hedio uh, thinks. I think he he's always sort of looking for the next step and looking to improve, and that's why he's done such an incredible job over uh, over two spells at Bournemouth. I think they're always sort of believing that they can go that extra step, and it just uh, it just makes them really entertaining. I really enjoy having them in the Premier League because I think they give it a go when they come up against the big teams. Uh, they try and play football. Always, like they won't sort of sway away from uh, house principles, and when it comes together like it did on Saturday, they're they're absolutely eggs to watch, and they'll be up there sort of fighting for a top half finish. I think this season, I can't remember where I heard it, um, sort of in the uh, post match analysis of this game somewhere, the the, the Bournemouth's front three are sort of like a a sort of watered down version of Liverpool's front three. The Fraser, King, and Wilson. <laughs> I think there's there's something in that, you know. They they both they're all three of them are, are very sort of talented on the ball, quick to run at defenses, and like I say, it's really exciting to watch them. And when it comes together, like it did on Saturday, they're, they're going to pick up some really impressive results. And uh, I don't know whether it'll last all season, but at the minute they're probably the team to watch along with Wolves outside of the top six. Yeah, as for their opponents, Watford, Paul. I mean, they now have to make sure that was a rare off day this season because we all know how it starts. Uh, or how it pans out after Christmas, the slide spectacularly begins, isn't it? So Javier Gracier will have to sort of just make sure that it's a, a drubbing that, like Cardiff's defeat um, to Tottenham, they just have to sort of put it to bed 
and just sort of digging and I guess for them success is what a top 10 finish this season uh, yeah it should be seen as a success but the uh, volatility of the Watford board might suggest that top 10 is good enough but it would be true, yes. uh, a miracle in my opinion you know um, I'd, Javi Gracia when he was named as a coach uh, a lot of Googling, Googling him and we're getting pictures of Javi Garcia that used to play for Man City popping up. Um, he's, he's a manager we don't know enough about really um, and the way they started the season, I think I, it was back in the August I even wrote an article saying you know, that they could be uh, one of the teams that do raise a few eye, eyebrows with the performances and a couple of results. Um, so now on the back of a, a 4-0 defeat, this is where we find out just how good Gracia really is, um, and he's got two weeks rest really to pick up his thoughts and get uh, his squad prepped for the next game. I think that the the team who, to be quite honest, on paper, you you actually put them to beat quite teams in the Premier League. Um, that I, I haven't seen as much of the uh, the Bournemouth game or the Bournemouth defeat as I would have liked. I've only seen the highlights, um, but it looked to me that uh, even when they were on the back foot and, and you know, heads were down, it was 4-0 down to 10 men, um, that they were still trying to have a go. And they've got players like Will Hughes, who I think, think is, is quite exciting to see and I hope that he can really push on with his career. He, he was very loyal to Derby by spending an extra couple of years in the Championship despite, you know, uh, interest from Premier League teams. But this is where we find out just how good uh, of a managerial appointment Gracia really was. I, I mean, I am losing confidence uh in their ability, and I think he will turn out to be a bit of a mistake. But, you know, I've been wrong about these things before when it's not my club. Well, Watford will want to hope they don't slide down the table, but we'll slide down the table ever so slightly as we go to Wolves now. And, Scott, if ever the mantra, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, was true, then this must be it, because it's a record eight unchanged lineups as the promoted side find them now seventh going into the international break. Now, for you, could they stay there all season and be... I guess, the best of the rest in the Premier League? I think they could, potentially. Uh, I think it would be either Wolves or maybe Everton. Maybe the other team, I think, might be up there. Yeah, fair shout. Um, I, I think they, they're looking really good. But against Palace, I actually thought Palace were the stronger side, perhaps, throughout. I mean, they had a lot of chances there. And, and Palace can uh, really play when they want to as well. So they, they need to sort out the um, uh, goal-scoring issue they have there. Um I think last season they relied a lot on um, Zaha and he's the type of player that's got the quality to um, get those goals in important games. Um, but I think they need to be more of a threat up front because um, I-, I felt a bit for Palace really, uh, watching that game. I thought they had plenty of chances and they were really unlucky. Uh, but Wolves, all-, all credit to them, they look a really good side. Out of the teams that got promoted, without doubt, the-, the best and adapted to the Premier League, um, the best as well. So, um yeah, they they look great, and I think seventh, eighth. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they finished that high up in the league. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, out of the sort of teams they could be competing for. I mean, if we look at whether Bournemouth can last the pace, you, you don't know because you've never seen that before. So they might be the sort of um, unknown quantity. Everton, they sort of they want to be there, don't they? But they keep flattering to deceive. They're spending this money, but they're not really getting the progress they want. So it's outside the top six, and that's if we include. Man United in the top six, so let's say the big six. 
the quality there thereafter is all sort of a much of a muchness really. So for a team like Wolves to sort of come in with the personnel they've got, it's not outside the realms of possibility for them to do it to be honest. And they've got everything in place. I think they've got an incredible manager. Um, you know, where he goes over in the next sort of few years, who knows? But um, yeah, it's an interesting time for Wolves. I mean, the stat about them not making any changes. If I sort of provide some extra context to that, like I say, Wolves have made absolutely none. Newcastle made 23 already, so that's an average of more than three per game since opening day of the season. So Rafa Benitez can't find the winning formula completely. Wolves, by and large, have sort of cracked it. But Dean, at the same time, they've only scored nine goals this season. So, you know, we're sort of purring about how they're playing, but a lot of credit must go to their back line as well. Yeah, I think it's it's mostly been built on that defence and it's, it's kind of strange because they're not the players you think of when you think about Wolves and the sort of players that they've signed over the last few years. You you tend to forget the likes of uh, Matt Doherty and Connor Cody who've been there for quite a while and, and just seem to be progressing along with the team, which is great to see. And uh, like you say there, Santo, he, he deserves a lot of praise for, for not only making some incredible signings with the funds that they have available and obviously the relationship with uh, with Mendes, uh, but also for bringing on some of the players that were already there and, and turning them into into really good players. I mean, Doherty is a player, I think, I read somewhere that uh, he'd sort of been ignored by previous managers for not being able to get forward enough. And yet, from what I've seen this season and towards the end of last season, when I watched them a few times, he seems to be one of the more attacking fullbacks in the league. Uh, and Connor Cody is always someone who I've been pretty impressed with. He's sort of moved back from a midfield role into the centre, uh, into the centre of like a, usually a three-man defence, and he just looks absolutely imperious on his day. And those players deserve a lot of credit because they're, they're sort of creating the the base for the more creative players in front of them to do the job. And look, everything's just sort of going Wolves' way at the moment. I mean, the fans are absolutely loving this sort of ride that they're on. Um, they've got funds to continue investing in the squad. I think in Jimenez, they have a striker who will end up with quite a few goals as well, so I don't think they'll have to worry too much about where the goals come from. And uh, yeah, for me, they'll be they'll be right up there. I think anything, I think anything less than eighth will be a disappointment for for the quality that they have in the side. And I have to say, even from what I saw at the end of last season, I'm not really surprised with how easily they've taken to life in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, they look like an established Premier League club, if that makes sense. Something, that, you know, a team that's been there for four or five seasons, like a Bournemouth almost, that they've sort of already settled and flown up the table. But, I mean, I was saying to um, Carl a couple of weeks back that if Wolves crack this early, then it's going to make the job for teams like Everton, Leicester, you know, the teams that want to be in the top six every season, you're then, you're then looking like a big seven. Like, Wolves could then quite happily sort of be in that half dozen if they sort of get this building block in place, then there's no reason they, you know the scale of where they can go is pretty much uncapped. So that's worrying for not just the teams around them, but also the teams near the top of the Premier League. But if we shift to the bottom very quickly, just a, a thought I had earlier, Paul, which is the sort of question I'm going to raise now, that Huddersfield and Newcastle, they both got promoted in the same season. And um, when you look mm. at Huddersfield, it's always second season syndrome that is mentioned to them. But it's never something which is mentioned in Newcastle direction even though Newcastle seems to be worse off at the moment is that because the focus is more on Newcastle's off-pitch drama I think the off-pitch drama certainly feeds into the on the field stuff with Newcastle and all the attention like you say in the media and everything is focused there and the discord between uh, Mike Ashley and the fans Mike Ashley and the manager Mike Ashley and the players Mike Ashley and the tea lady Um, you know that probably is the overriding headline grabber. Um, the lack of investment at Newcastle. 
um, is seen more as a an issue rather than it being second season. Because if you think about it, all right, it's not on par with some of the other teams around them. But Huddersfield have invested this summer um, quite substantially by their own pocket margin, um, whereas Newcastle really have they've had to fight, or Rafa Benitez has had to fight to try and get any kind of support from their club's hierarchy in, in terms of bringing in personnel. So I think Newcastle's point of view, they've probably cut a bit of, a bit of slack. They've got mitigated circumstances. But also, uh, Huddersfield, you know, it's a it's a rugby town, really. And, and that's not taking anything away from the football fans that, that live there. But there is... Um, some people, not necessarily myself, that, that believe that uh, Huddersfield as a football club now have kind of just enjoyed the ride and are almost uh, kind of just, uh, they've not got any sort of impetus to real kick on or to, to stay in the Premier League. They're just satisfied with where they're at. Um, I think they've got an excellent manager, uh, but I think that they've reached their uh, the, the heights that they can with a club that has the infrastructure that Huddersfield do, whereas Newcastle, I think, have unharnished potential, shall we say, um, and it, it is the off-the-field things that are really stopping that football club from from getting to where it uh, could potentially reach. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough statement, to be honest. Um, I think, yeah, you know, I think Huddersfield have almost plateaued, and there's no disrespect to them, like you say, but I think Newcastle, it's a case of if what if really, but um, it's always a job mm-hmm. that continually unfolds and I'm sure there'll be more and more episodes down the line, of which there'll be more and more episodes down the line of this podcast and we've hit almost full time, so I need to do a little bit of admin. Um, first, the loser pool picks of the week from last week, um, just to recap on those, as you should know by now if you're listeners, me, JS and Carl, we both pick, well we all pick, sorry, our teams that are going to lose, our guaranteed losers. Last week, JS was minutes away from getting it wrong as he went with Newcastle to lose but they, I guess, came good in the end. So he's uh, on a maximum three points this week. But it's a uh, maximum points all round as uh, Carl went for Cardiff to lose to Tottenham. Got that one correct. And I went for Chelsea to get the better of Southampton. So we all got losers celebrating there. Our league table takes uh, JS on to 25 points and myself on Carl on 22 points. So a little bit of work to do there. And don't forget the loser pool super prize pot of £1,000 is active not this Saturday, the Saturday after. So you really, really want to get involved with that as it does pay to pick the loser. Also, apologies if you're a Brighton, West Ham, Everton or Leicester fan. We've simply run out of time. Brighton, um, a good win for them. West Ham, obviously they'll be frustrated that their momentum has slightly been halted. Leicester, they'll be disappointed in defeat at home. Wes Morgan, I think it was the right decision getting sent off. I think perhaps the tackle that led to the second yellow was not really the one that should have got him sent off. I think that other one was a bit more robust minutes earlier, but you know I don't think he can have many complaints. And I think that's about it, really. I just want to say it was a cracking debut from all three of you. Um, Dean, I know we've spoken before, but I hope you'll be on the podcast again sometime soon. Yeah, of course, Dan. And uh, just a quick shout-out that anyone can follow me at Dean Smith FT on Twitter, and uh, you'll find all my tips and stuff on footballtips.com. Yep, perfect, mate. Uh, Paul, same invite to you. If you want to sort of um, plug anything, pl- please feel free. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Paul McGarrigy uh, and follow over the bar as well. Uh, um, our website's otbfootball.net and we've got loads of great content on there for you. 
Excellent. And Scott, a, uh, a warm invite to you for the rest of the season if you want to get involved again. I don't know if you've got anything to plug, but thanks from me for being on the show tonight. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter as admin at the Coy's Life. There we go. Everyone getting their plugs in. So that's, that's all <laughs> sorted. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time... Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.